I believe that uh, human beings have a tendency to, very be able to be able to very quickly sniff out a double standard, especially if those human beings are siblings, brothers and sisters. I got five kiddos, so we experience this from time to time. Uh, and I would say that the most defined point of it is when it comes to who gets to sit up front, who gets to ride shotgun. It's a pretty major thing from day to day in our family. Back when I was a kid, it was pretty simple. You call shotgun, you get to sit shotgun, right? Does anyone have that same upbringing? Fantastic. It's changed. There's more rules now. Um, so I thought that was the case, but with my kids, apparently if you call shotgun inside, it doesn't count because you have to be outside to call shotgun. But you can't call it until everyone who's going to be riding in the car is also outside because in that's the only way it's fair because everyone can hear who calls shotgun first, so they all got to be outside too. And then, if you're the oldest sibling, apparently you can just throw down the trump card and say, I'm the oldest, I get to ride up front, and that's like a rule. But sometimes it gets bad and they have to call, call me to be the judge, right? And they're, and they're wanting me to say, who gets to, who gets to sit up front, Dad? Who's, who's the one? And they're, they're wanting to be, to be fair, but also show them a little partiality, right? Like, who gets to sit the, up front? The oldest? It's oldest, right? They want me to show a little bit of partiality. So... When it comes to the church in Rome, um, there's this tension that's going on that may not be familiar to us this morning. And, and I want us to lean into it because the, the problem that we're talking about and the solution that is brought isn't probably a problem that's on everyone's radar. Imagine if, if I did have different rules for my kids. And I, and I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give th- these kids the rules, but I'm not going to give these kids the rules, but I'm going to hold them all accountable to, to follow the rules. And I'll, make, I'll take it a step further. What if, so I have five kiddos, um, four biological and one is adopted. What if I gave my biological kiddos the rules, but not my adopted child the rules, but I still held her accountable the same way I did these? Everyone's looking at me like, you would be bad. You would be a bad father. And you, and you would be right. There would be something, a horrible partiality there, which would be, which would be seen as kind of an injustice. Like things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. And so that is the scenario in the church in Rome. It's made up of biological children and adopted children. There's children of the flesh versus children of the promise. The Gentiles weren't, weren't there the whole time that the Jews were, were their people. And so the Gentiles were grafted in. And Paul is emphasizing for them the fact that their father, God, is a good father because he shows no partiality. So you probably weren't on the way to church this morning saying, you know, I've been worried about God's potential partiality, and I hope they talk about it. When we preach sermons, the, point of this, the main points of the sermon are supposed to be whatever the main point of the text is. And one of the things that we have to do as a people is look at what it says in its, in its setting and to the people it's talking to first before we ask, what does it say to me? And so... I'm encouraging you all to dig in because this is really important to the Jews and Gentiles. They're, they're a church that they're coming together, they're seated at the same table, but they, they got different rules they were brought up by, different customs, different requirements, and, and they're, they're looking at God and, and there, there could be some concern that God's treating them differently or maybe they want to be treated differently. So verse 11, I'm picking it up, I'm, we're looking at verse 12 through 16, but I got to pick up 11 because it makes a statement, God shows no partiality for God shows no partiality. 
it ties together these two sections of Scripture. Last week we looked at um, Pastor Kai taught through this first set of verses in chapter 2. And verse 6 says, God will render to each one according to their works. God will render to each one according to their works. And then in verses 7 through 9, the listener is urged to consider the question, did you obey truth in your life or did you obey unrighteousness? For God shows no partiality. At this point, there's at least two things that could happen in the Roman church. First, the Jews could say something like, well, why are we held accountable to the law if the Gentiles aren't held accountable to the law? They're looking at their father, God, and saying, are they getting special treatment? Or the Jews could be saying, shouldn't we get some special treatment? Since we're the people of God, entrusted with the promises of God, called out of Egypt, like, sh- shouldn't there be a difference between us since we're set apart and, and entrusted with these things? So that's one view that the Jews could have, sort of, sort of like the firstborn, feeling like they should get the front seat. The Gentiles could say, well, why should we be held accountable to a law that we weren't given? So you have this family that it's not good if they're divided, but if anything of what they say is true, then it looks like it could be the case that God is showing partiality, either to the Jews or to the Gentiles. And that's a problem. The result would be a divided church. So Paul crafts this argument that he's very linear in his thinking. He does what's called a diatribe where he says, if this is the case, what about this? Should we say this? No, I shouldn't say this. We should. And so it's kind of got these little circular deals, but ultimately it's this linear line of thinking where he's taking us eventually to Romans 3 that tells us all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But to understand it, we have to connect the fours. Verse 11 says, for God shows no partiality. And then in verse 12, it says, for all have sinned. And then 13 is a four and 14 is a four. And when we're studying scripture, if you see a therefore, ask what's the therefore, therefore. Because it's referring to something previous and, and about to explain something coming up. And it's the same way with all these fours. What are those fours there for? So verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So the proof that God shows no partiality, which is really important, is that all sinners will be judged. All who have sinned without the law will be judged. All who have sinned with the law will be judged. If only some sinners are judged, then God shows partiality. Because why did some of them not face judgment? But if all sinners are judged, then God shows no partiality. What I want us to see here is, while it might be hard for us to connect to this, if God's judgment is not righteous, the church is doomed. Like, it's a real problem. If God's judgment is not impartial, if it is not fair, if it can be under some charge of not being right and you you held the different people to different things, it's going to be a real problem for the church because judgment encompasses so much of life, death, and eternity And it shapes the way we view today, every day we've ever had, and every day we will ever have. Tim Keller says, without judgment, salvation has no meaning. So for us to rightly value the salvation that marks this Christian church in Rome, for us to value it and be like, man, Christ is mighty to save, he is good. Without judgment, salvation doesn't have any meaning. And so the way that we view God, believing that he judges in a certain way that is fair, 
will, di- will dictate how we walk, how, how we talk, how the actions in our lives. It, it dictates our view of death. When we gather to bury a loved one, we'll, we'll, we'll note salvation and judgment. We'll, we'll note what Christ has done. And as we consider eternity, that one day time will melt back into eternity and, and we will have this forever existence that is very much uh, established based on the, the judgment of God and the salvation that has great value to those who have put their faith in Christ. So we move to verse 13 and it's another four. It says, for it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So God shows no partiality. For God shows no partiality. For all sinners will be judged. Well, how does that work? They'll be, how will they be judged? How does that work? For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law. So there's a question that comes up in 12. The question is this. How will those without the law be judged? And the answer is in verse 13. It's the doers of the law who will be justified. Are we all clear on that? No, we're not. This is like an argument that we really got to climb into. It's like, okay, how will they be judged? Well, it's the doers of the law who will be judged. Oh, okay, thank you. There's a massive implication here that we got to dive into and then we'll unpack it. The massive implication, number one, is this. If it is true in verse 13, the doers of the law who will be justified, it's the doers of the law who will be justified, for anyone to be righteous before God and justified before God, something huge must happen to turn them into a person who is a doer of the law. Something huge has to happen in a sinner's life to make them a person who is marked by being a doer of the law, yet it still poses the same question. How can someone be a doer of the law if they've not heard the law? How can I expect you to do something that I haven't told you what it is you're supposed to do and not to do? And the answer is in verses 14 through 16, and it says this. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. You could stop there and say, awesome, how? How How could they possibly do anything that the law says? And keep reading. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ. Every created being has the work of the law written on their hearts. There's not a single human that you will ever encounter that doesn't have the work of the law written on their hearts. You may encounter some people that you think maybe there's nothing in there judging right or wrong. But there, there's encouragement in here. In fact, the reason that a Jew or Gentile could look at God and wonder, is he being fair? Is that right? Is because their sense of fairness is coming from their heart. There, there's this crazy sense in which Paul's having to walk them through. Hey, even the thing that, that you might look at God and say, is that is that?" Is that right? Is that righteous? Is that fair? Exists only because their question about God came from God. He gave them the ability to have this thing that they're wrestling with inside saying, is that right or is that wrong? It's this sort of moral thing. 
which leads to massive implication number two. God is perfectly is a perfectly righteous and impartial judge because every person that he has created in his image bears a law on their heart whereby the doing of that law can be expected of every human being regardless of circumstances. There's no one outside of that. Every human being can be expected to to adhere to the law as it is written on their heart. So for the Gentiles, they didn't grow up like the Jews did, and they had the law, and it was part of their heritage, and they, they studied it, and they, and, they, and they encouraged one another in it. They didn't have that. But what they did have was something written on their hearts. How could they possibly be doers of the law? It's on their heart. You might say it this way. Romans 1 says, what could be known about God is plain to them. So Romans 1 would say, you can go outside and you can look up and look around and know that there is a creator God and you are, you are, you are under him. And then Romans 2 would say that in Romans 1, why you can go outside and look around and what is true about God is plain to you, Romans 2 says you can look inside and the law of God is written on your heart. You can look inside and know that there is a God because you whether you adhere to truth or adhere to unrighteousness, you have some sense that there is a th- in some such thing as right and wrong. So on one hand, for the context of this letter, it's really good news because God isn't showing favoritism. It's good news, great news, because God isn't showing partiality. He doesn't have double standards. It's great news because God is truly impartial and fair and righteous in all of his judgment. It's great news because it means that every single human being actually does have a moral compass. It's bad news, on the other hand, because all of our moral compasses are broken. And a very real day of judgment is coming. That's where the scriptures lead us today. God does not show partiality, but all of those moral compasses are broken. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and a very real day of judgment is coming. So our first application point this morning as we consider what does this say to us is is this. Consider that you will be judged according to your works. Consider that you will be judged according to your works. Some of you sitting there might think, be thinking, I don't like this church anymore. That sounds not right. No, so you can hear me say, and you can hear me just read, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ. Jesus will judge you according to your works. You'll be rewarded for what you've done. And that might hit you weird. But don't just hear me say it and then kind of glaze over it. I want you to consider it this morning. I want you to lean into it. That's where God's leading us this morning. If we believe that preaching verse by verse allows God to set the agenda for our church, then it is God's agenda that we have this awkward moment together. Your works are the evidence in the courtroom of judgment, not the basis of your justification. You don't earn your way into a place of salvation and forgiveness by doing enough good things. No, no, no. 
You put your faith in Jesus and the way that that's proven, if you're in a courtroom and there's evidence being presented, the evidence that's being presented is the works of your life. And I would offer, as we consider that together and the weight of that, to desire otherwise is to ask Jesus to show you partiality. Hey God, I I believe in my heart. I had some really good intentions. But I was only based on my judge based on my works. That that's asking God to do something he can't God cannot change. We can. But we cannot ask God to show us partiality. I, w- I want us to lean into this because I think some of us would prefer not to think of our final judgment. It's fair to say. It's pretty heavy. It can give us a lot of fear. It can make us feel very fearful. It can um, make us feel anxious and uncertain. Many of us have come to grips with the reality that we are conceived in iniquity and brought forth in sin. So judgment can feel scary. Uh, Many of us have come to the reality that we've already read ahead to Romans 3 and we know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For some of us, when we think of judgment, we might think, well, I have put my faith in Jesus, so I won't face any judgment. I've I've thought that at times, like, okay, maybe it's not bad, I put my faith, I mean, I think it's going to be okay, and you might think, maybe I won't face any judgment because I put my faith in Jesus, but that's not what God says. God says very clearly that Jesus will judge you according to your works. Your works do not save you. But when the evidence is weighed, it'll be, it's not, and it's not weighed, it's, it's when it's taken into account. It's not this deal where at the end it's going to be, here's all the bad things, here are the good things, let's hope there's more good things than bad. No, it's that if you put your faith in Jesus, there is actually things that change in your life as you're brought out of darkness. So, like, lean into it a little more. Like, do you genuinely believe that you will sit before Jesus and he could say to you, you have confessed your sins, you, can, you professed faith in me, but there aren't any good works. Imagine, it's the end. You're being judged by Jesus. You're in front of him. There aren't any good works. You live for yourself. You didn't love others. You loved yourself. You didn't look out for others' interests. You looked out for your own interests. You didn't put others first. You put yourself first. But I'll just assume that you meant well and that your intentions were true. Enter into the joy of your master. If you want that to happen, you want something that can't happen because Jesus cannot show partiality. And you're, that's what you're asking for in a moment like that. If you're saying, I don't want to be, I don't want my works brought up at the end. My fear, and the, thing, the reason I think we have to, to wrestle with the weight of this this morning is that for those who professed something and said there was something going on in their heart when, it showed, when there was nothing in their life that would show that to be true, rather than hearing enter into the joy of your master, I think the scripture is warning us and feel, to feel the weight of the reality that you more, are more likely to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. There's a weightiness about this. Which leads us to our second point. Don't be too easy on yourself. 
Just when you were hoping it might let up a little bit, it doesn't. Don't be too easy on yourself. Why do we go there as a church this morning? Though you are dependent on the finished work of Christ and you are justified by faith alone, your works still really, really matter. They really do. Never will you hear Paul minimize the works of faithful Christians and what they've put their hands to. Books have been written about what people have done because of how their faith moved them. They've moved to foreign countries. They've taken massive risks. Orphans have been taken care of. People have been loved with truth because of risks that people took because their life changed because of their faith. That people have been all in and blameless in a local place because they know that they're just local and finite, but they're, they're blameless in it and they're all in and they serve there because they know that God is infinite and he is strong and he is good, but your works really do matter. You'll never hear it minimized in scripture. Though they are not the basis of your justification, they are the evidence of your faith. For some of us when we were when we professed Christ for the first time and we said, you know, I'm, I'm, I am confessing my sin and I believe that I have no hope outside of Christ. Someone wrote in the, begin, in the front of your Bible the date and time that that happened. And sometimes life carries on from there and kind of kicks you in the teeth. And life gets hard. And, and, you, and you find yourself in seasons where you're wondering, do I really believe this? Am I really in the faith? And, and someone might take you back to your Bible and turn to the front and say, you really are. The evidence is, is this date and this time. And I would offer you to, this, to you this morning that the, the date and time is not the evidence. Your works are the evidence. How you live your life is the evidence. Without it, there's no proof of, of, of the true faith that you profess in your heart. Let me give you another example. Let's say if my child lies to me, this may or may not have happened, but if I had a child and that child lied, I wouldn't say to that child, well, that's just who you are. You lie. You're a liar. I'm not going to go that easy on him. I would remind that child, that's not who you are. You've professed your faith in Jesus, and so your actions right now aren't in keeping with who you are and who you belong to. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. I wouldn't let them off so easy as saying, well, I guess that's just who you are. Because if you do that and you go easy on them and say, oh, that's just who you are, then there's a certain point where they become adults who just say, well, that's just who I am. I'm just an angry guy. I just scream at my children and belittle my wife. I love Jesus, but I'm just an angry guy. No, that's not the way it's supposed to be. You're being too easy on yourself. Or you might say, I'm just impatient. People always seem to be trying me too much. That's just who you are. You might just go easy on yourself and say, I'm just undisciplined. I'm not good with money. I'm just, truth is hard for me because it costs too much. I'm just covetous. I just, I, have, I regularly want what other people have. feel like I've got the short end of the stick. 
you're going too easy on yourself when you say excuses like that's just who I am because it's not true. What we're called to do as one another is we stir one another up to love and good works. And we have works prepared for us ahead of time by God so that we may do them. So don't overlook this reality that we will be judged by Jesus according to our works and don't be too easy on yourself in the process. We don't make excuses. We really can change. Keller in his commentary on Romans says, we mustn't misread Paul as saying that works need to be added to faith in order for us to be able to stand on the day of judgment. But equally, we mustn't allow our understanding of salvation by grace to diminish the challenge here. If the works of our hands are not being changed and informed by the faith we profess to have, it is right to ask whether our faith is heartfelt and real. It's like a litmus test. It's a checkup. It's, if we know that's how we, be ju- we will be judged, it's fitting that we would sit here today and say, huh, where am I at? Is there anything that I should be doing that I'm not doing? Is there anything that I shouldn't be, that I'm, that I'm not doing that I should be or that I am doing that I shouldn't be? Is there anything I'm, I'm battling with, but I'm not battling hard enough and I really need to say it out loud, find some accountability and reckon with it? There's this, this tension here where it's so good that God doesn't show partiality, but also we, we cannot be easy on ourselves and act like our works don't matter. It is, it is worthwhile to consider if it is heartfelt and real. So don't be too easy on yourself. But finally, don't be too hard on yourself. Some of y'all need to hear that this morning as well. Don't be too hard on yourself. Not, that doesn't mean to take any of the things lightly that we've considered this morning. What I mean is this. You see that it says, by the, by the gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus. And many of us might say, not the secret things. Oh, no. Anything but the secret things. There might be things that jump into your mind right now that are the secret things that you would not want to be brought up at judgment. But what, what I want you to see this morning is when it's referring to the secret things, it's referring to what's really going on in your heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. So those secret things are what's really going on in your heart. And for many of us this morning, we're far more aware of our own shortcomings than we are aware of the faithful daily work of Christ in our lives. For many sitting here this morning, many of us are far more aware of those moments and those days when we were in charge of our lives because we weren't faithfully submitting to God. Some of us are still carrying guilt and shame over sins that have been forgiven by God and covered by the blood of Christ, and we forget that. What I want us to see this morning, when I say don't be too hard on yourself, what I mean is Christ is mighty to save, and we can be transformed. There's a problem when we begin to believe that we just can't change, because then you'll believe that no one else can really change. And then you become one of those professing Christians that's cynical, and you don't want any vulnerability, so you say, well, that's just the way they are, that's just the way they're going to be, and you believe people can't change, when in reality, the love and the joy of life is found in knowing that we can change. You can change, other people can change. We do that, and God calls us into that together. In Romans 12, he'll say, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern 
what is the will of God? What is good and pleasing and perfect? There's this, you can please God. Your acts can be righteous and beautiful because you're forgiven by Jesus. He separates our sin as far as the east is from the west, and people can really change. And some of you need that encouragement this morning. Personalize it. On Tuesday, when you were, when your kids were really trying your belief <laughs> and your patience, and, and you, you, you were about to lose it, but you said, you know what? You committed that to Jesus and you showed gentleness and you led them to truth about God instead of just losing it. That was, that was lovely. When your spouse said something hurtful and you thought about Proverbs, how it's, it can be your glory to overlook an offense, and you knew that they were having a hard day with something and you chose to overlook that offense, that's commendable. Like it, it's not some tattered version. Like it's, it's lovely. It's commendable. As a staff, every staff meeting, we start our staff meetings with whatever is lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Think about these things because those are real things. And so we spend probably 20 minutes talking about you guys largely and what is going on and what we are seeing because there's lovely, commendable, worthy of praise things because of the work of Jesus in your life. So if you are in that place of being like, I can't change, no one can change, put that lie to death. And embrace Christ, lean into Christ, and and take those to him. Let your request be made known, and he gives peace that exceeds understanding and allows you to move in a way that glorifies him. There is an expectation that is very clear that we are called to and can live lives that glorify God above everything else. We're called to be bright and salty and aromatic because of the finished work of Jesus. So as we think about judgment, Jesus separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. The judgment will be based on good works that our lives produced because our faith was in Christ. For those who have placed their faith in the finished work of Christ, good works are a guarantee. It's to be expected. Like today and tomorrow, you can expect there's going to be good works because you put your faith in, in Jesus. Perseverance to the end is a guarantee for those who have put their faith in Jesus. So, persevere. So that moment with Christ may not be filled with all the guilt and shame that you fearfully anticipate if your faith is in Jesus. Consider this morning, it is possible that judgment might be one of the most wonderful moments you've ever experienced. It might be a time of worship. Where you're sitting and, and you're seeing these works, some of them you remembered, some of them you lo- a, bo- a lot you likely did not remember, and you're able to say, God is so good, Jesus was so mighty in my life, that there would be anything good that would come of it, but there is good that comes of it, and it could be a time of worship where you're honoring and glorifying God, because you see his work in your life, he in fact is mighty to save, and he does draw us out of darkness and into light. As we take the supper, that's what we proclaim every week. And there's a moment where we're called to examine ourselves. That's the tension this morning. There's a weightiness about this. Don't be too easy on yourself. Don't be too hard on yourself. But there's a weightiness in the text this morning. There's a number of places where we can read it. But I want to read to you briefly from Hebrews as we prepare to take the supper. So as we move and as we, as we get in our places, I want to encourage you as a body, don't check out. 
Because the part here where we talk about Jesus at the end and we take the supper is incredibly important. So listen to Hebrews chapter 10 in light of our text this morning in preparation of our supper. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It goes on to say it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We're supposed to feel the weight of that. But it goes on to say, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, real compassion because of your faith. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you had, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. That's part of what we're proclaiming, a confidence in Christ. And we know that there is a great reward. You can store up treasure in heaven. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while. And the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. There's that tension. This is where we we consider ourselves, we examine ourselves. And our proclamation as we take the supper this morning is, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That only happens in Christ. Take and eat. Take a drink. Lord, we are thankful for salvation. We're thankful for the judgment that is is impartial and righteous. We're thankful that you can't change, but that we can. As we continue in worship through giving, help us to be wholehearted. Help the words of our mouth and the actions of our hands not to be far from what we're proclaiming in our hearts. We submit to you this morning. We love you and praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.